The Gospel of Luke, chapter 2, beginning in verse 21. And when eight days had passed before his circumcision, his name was then called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And when the days for their purification according to the law of Moses were completed, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male that opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice according to what was said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. And there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, looking for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to carry out for him the custom of the law, then he took him into his arms and blessed God and said, Now, Lord, you are releasing your bondservant to depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people, Israel. And his father and mother were amazed at the things which were being said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rise of many in Israel and for a sign to be opposed and a sword will pierce even your own soul to the end that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years and had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage. And then as a widow to the age of 84, she never left the temple serving night and day with fastings and prayers. At that very moment, she came up and began giving thanks to God and continued to speak of him to all those who were looking for the redemption of Jerusalem. When they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee, to their own city of Nazareth. The child continued to grow and become strong, increasing in wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. And Father, we do thank you for the story that was recorded for us. Lord, we pray that you would help us as we work our way through this text. Lord, help us to understand it rightly. Father, I pray that you would soften our hearts, Lord, that we would hear you speaking to us. We love you, Lord. We praise you. and We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So the story today, where the main focus is going to be in the temple. As Luke um, writes out his gospel to Theophilus to give the exact truth of the things that had happened, we learn a number of things about the temple. The temple sort of becomes um, a focal point of his text, which is a new thought for me. The, The story began in the temple with the angel Gabriel appearing to... Um, let's see now, Zacharias. And he says, you're going to have a son and you're going to name him John and he's going to be a forerunner to Christ. He loses his voice because he doesn't doesn't respond in faith. Um, Then the story shifts up north to Nazareth, a small little town, uh, 50, 100 people. It was a pit stop town. I've often described it as in California, it would be Buttonwillow, California. There's absolutely nothing in Buttonwillow. You stop, you get a burger, you gas up your car. So in Nazareth, they'd gas up their camel. I don't think In-N-Out was there yet, but you could, you know, you get some food and continue your journey. And in that town, there's a young Mary, 12, 13, 14 years old, poor, engaged to be married. The angel Gabriel appears to her and says, you're going to have a son. You're going to conceive as a virgin. Mary, you remember in Genesis 3.15, the promise of the Messiah in Isaiah 7:14 it says a, a child will be born of a virgin that's you she responds in faith she hears that her cousin Elizabeth has conceived in her old age and and she was barren and that she was now 6 months along so Mary responds in faith she makes the 80 mile journey down south to the southern region as she appears now weeks two, one week two weeks from conception As she walks into the door, John the Baptist in Mary's womb leaps 
at the coming of the Messiah in the womb. They spend three months together, and then Mary goes back to Nazareth. John the Baptist is born, and then uh, from there, last week we learned that a census was taken. So Joseph and Mary make the journey down south to a town in Bethlehem, which is just south of Jerusalem, to register for the census. And during this time, they had the child, the Lord Jesus. Jesus was God in eternity past. He was not a man that became God. He was God in eternity. He humbled himself, came to earth in a very humble sort of way. The town was overrun with people. They were in a, you know, the, we, what is it, a manger scene. We have a very nice manger scene. But this was like a working barn. This would, you know, manure, dirty hay, just nastiness, far from any sort of medical hospital that we have. And the Messiah comes under these circumstances. And this is where we pick up our story. In verse 28, 21, we see that eight days had elapsed from his birth. And we're told in Luke chapter 2, verse 21, And when eight days had passed... Before his circumcision, his name was then called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. So here's Jesus, Jewish boy. Eight days had come. They're circumcising him. This would have been a profound thing for the parents, for anybody involved. They know and completely understand that Jesus is the promised Messiah. Circumcision doesn't carry the sort of significance today that we would think of back then. See, for them, it goes back to Genesis chapter 17. God made a promise with Abraham and said, through you, in chapters 12 and 15, that through you, all nations will be blessed. God makes the promise, says it's conditional totally on me. He puts Abraham into a sleep, and he makes this covenant. At the end of this covenant, in chapter 17, he tells Abraham that on the eighth day you're to circumcise the men of Israel as a sign to the nations, of the, the reminder of this promise that the Messiah will come. It's to separate you from all nations. Later in chapter 22, after the birth of Isaac, Abraham knows that this promise of God could only come through his only son Isaac. It was the only way the promise could come. God tells him to take Isaac and to sacrifice him. So he goes up to today. Uh, Mount Moriah, this is the location of the Dome of the Rock in Israel. You know, the big gold ball. We're going to look at a picture of it. On that spot, Abraham marches up with Isaac. He lifts a sword, about to take his life. The angel of the the Lord appears, which is believed to be the pre-incarnate Christ. Jesus shows up and says, spare his life. Look at a ram's over there in the bushes. They take a ram, sacrifice a ram on that spot where the temple would be built. And the Jewish people understood that circumcision was to remind them of this promise. And so here are these very godly, devout Jewish parents, young, under 18. Nobody, they're both under 18. They're young. They, when they circumcise their son, they understand that this is the Messiah. That the whole symbol of circumcision, that it would be fulfilled in their son. Jesus going to the cross would fulfill this promise. And we are consider we are sons and daughters of Abraham because of Jesus. We've been grafted in through faith. This is powerful. They've been doing circumcisions their whole life. And this child, circumcision would be fulfilled. And then we fast forward a number of days, verse 22. And when the days for their purification, according to the law of Moses, were completed, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. And verse 23, this is great. See, Luke is not, he's writing to Gentiles. He's not writing to Jewish people. He doesn't expect us to understand the Old Testament. And so there's parentheses there. He doesn't, like for all of us in this room, we're not Jews. We don't go worship at the temple. We don't understand what's going on. And in parentheses here, he places, this is what's going on. He explains to us, as it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male that opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And so Jesus was the firstborn, he was a male, and he opened Mary's womb. And we learn in Leviticus chapter 12 that there's a whole process of when a child is born for going to the temple and making an offering to the Lord. And we read in verse 24, And to offer a sacrifice according to what was said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. So to understand what's going on here, I want us to go to Leviticus chapter 12, 
in Leviticus chapter 12, gives us understanding of why Mary and Joseph were going to the temple. In this story, we're going to, there's a verse we're going to look at that last night, it, it, it kind of dawned on me in a new way. We all know that Jesus lived and died under the law. He fulfilled the law perfectly. He was God. Early in his life, part of his fulfilling the law was contingent on his parents being obedient to the Lord. So Jesus is just, he's 40 days old in today's story. His parents could have said, ah, the law says to go to the temple to make a consecration, but yeah, there's a party up in Greece. We're going to go just, we got a, we got something else going on. We're going to bypass this. And we'll see in today's text that his parents were obedient in helping their child fulfill the law. And today's story comes out of Leviticus 12, verse 1. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel, saying, When a woman gives birth and bears a male child, then she shall be unclean for seven days, as in the days of her menstruation she shall be unclean. On the eighth day, the flesh of his foreskin shall be circumcised. Then she shall remain in the blood of her purification for 33 days, she shall not touch any consecrated thing, nor enter the sanctuary until the days of her purification are completed. But if she bears a female child, then she shall be unclean for two weeks, as in her menstruation, and she shall remain in the blood of her purification for 66 days. When the days of her purification are completed, for a son or for a daughter, she shall bring to the priest at the doorway of the tent of meeting, a one-year-old lamb for a burnt offering and a young pigeon or a turtle dove for a sin offering. Then he shall offer it before the Lord to make atonement for her, and she shall be cleansed from the flow of her blood. This is the law for her who bears a child, whether male or female. So the bottom line in this is after a child is born, there's two sort of circumstances. For a male child, day eight, circumcise a child. Day 40, go to the temple, offer a lamb and a pigeon. Female child, there's 14 days. And then after the 14 days, you wait another. So it totals 80 days. So I went to public school. So 66 days, I had to read it. So 66 plus 14, that's 80 days. Male child, 40 days. Female, 80 days. And then when they go, they make an offering for their sin. There's a lot of speculation over the reasons why. Why for a boy was it 40 days and why for a girl was it 80 days? I don't have the answer for you. There's two sort of thoughts. Last service, I leaned toward the second one. And I think I'm still leaning there today, but I don't really know. It doesn't really matter. The first one is they said that for a boy child, it was 40 days and the girl was longer because it was to be a reminder of Eve, you know, tempting Adam with the fruit. And so they wanted this reminder of the longer thing. I don't know that I really buy that one. The second one where I'm going to spend more time is they said for the male child, they've already gone through the process of circumcision. So at eight days, I've only had daughters, but to take a little baby boy's dad, like to to put this pain on your son as a reminder of this promise of God, and that this was happening for your sin, that this is a promise that we're reminded that God is going to have to atone from our sin. We're separated from a holy God. They had to go through the process of circumcision eight days into it. And then, what was it? How many days? For a total of 40. So I, don't, I can just avoid math. So they said, well, they've already gone through, you know, they had a symbol already and a reminder. So they understand that as they're going to the temple, as they're going to worship, as they're going to into the presence of the Lord, because the temple, this is where God's presence was. And it was almost like they needed to remember that there are sinful people and that this child that they were given by the Lord, to go into the presence of the Lord, they needed atonement for their sin. So the boy version of the child, because of the circumcision, they sort of got the um, condensed version of the offering. For the girl version, they wanted to string it out a little bit longer because they didn't have to go through circumcision And so there was this, listen, when you go to the temple, you need to realize, remember, God is holy and you're making the sacrifice and you're going into his holy place. And this is a big deal. So I kind of lean for that one. But I want you to notice that the offering that you were supposed to make, you were required to offer a lamb and you were required to offer a pigeon or a turtle dove. But then we read in verse 8. 
But if she cannot afford a lamb, then she shall take two turtle doves or two young pigeons, the one from a burnt offering and the other for a sin offering, and the priest shall make atonement for her and she will be clean. The law required, see, I'm from Valley Center, I should get this, a lamb, lamb, lamb. I got to get it in my head, a lamb. Expensive lamb and a, and a, and a pigeon. But if you couldn't afford this, it said that there was a clause in there so that everybody could make this. Instead of having to provide a lamb, you'd have to provide a pigeon, two of them. And so that gives us some insight to Joseph and Mary back in Luke chapter 2 as we go there. We're told that when they go to the temple to make this offering for Jesus, they do not have a lamb. They have two pigeons. And it confirms that Joseph and Mary, are they're, they're peasants, they're poor. Now, being a carpenter was not a, it was not a vocation that was kind of a poor vocation. It was a, it was a good vocation, but these are young. I mean, they're 16, 17, 18. He started his vocation. He's got a good career. He's going to do well, but he's just, he's just out of the gates. He hasn't saved enough money. And what I love about this is this was pleasing in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord doesn't care about the magnitude of your gift. See, here we intentionally, like when we take our offering, when we, you know, we have plates that you, know, you can pass around where you can see, oh, what so-and-so put in. But we intentionally have little bags, so when we pass the offering, you could have nothing and slip it something in there. Nobody would know because it's between you and the Lord. But imagine, here's Jesus, here's Joseph, they're poor. The temple's massive. We're going to look at a picture. We're talking 20 football fields. And what was required of you was to bring a lamb. And I don't know if they have a leash for lamb. We're in Valley. I don't know if they carried a little lamb. If they, you know, whatever. However, they were supposed to bring this in. And so there's people with their, like, Rolls Royces of lambs walking out. I got all kind of money. I'm making this very expensive sacrifice unto the Lord. So here's Jesus, 40 days old, being carried by his mom, poor, 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 staying in a barn where the animals go to the bathroom, walking up to the temple. This was a big deal for community, for worship, Jerusalem, up on a hill. They would sing the Psalms of Ascent, Psalms like 125 through 130 or so. They would sing these songs, expecting to meet God. Before you would enter the temple, there was the baptismal things where you would walk down the steps on one side and you would cleanse yourself. Then you would turn around and you'd walk up on the other side. You would clothe yourself in white. And it was all part of this process. As you're getting closer to the holiest of holies, all of these symbols are being put in place to remind you of your sin and the separation from God. And all of these offerings... It was symbolic of the final offering that would be made in Christ. And so they're approaching God. They have, here's Mary. She knows she's carrying the Messiah. And there's her husband, a hold of these two little pigeons. And the well-to-do people passing with their lambs, looking down. I don't know if they had to go to the back of the line. I don't know what the situation is. But it was very apparent that they were poor and they couldn't give what was required of them in the law. This week I found out that um, Unshackled, the radio program in Chicago, is they have accepted my story. They, they sent me, I got it. We didn't have any idea what was going on. All, all of a sudden, on like Monday or Tuesday, they sent us the manuscript of, I'm a two-parter, so I'm, there's going to be two parts to my story. And they said, can you read the manuscripts and tell us if we, we articulated it? So I'm like in tears the whole time reading this thing. I wrote her back and said, oh, well, from through the tears, the best I could see, it looked pretty good to me. And she's like, okay, if you're, she's like, when our subjects are crying, that means that we nailed God's grace and telling the story. And we saw that it was, they're going to record on Saturday, March 6th or 5th, and then again on March 12th. And so we were kind of praying and it's like, oh, well, God sort of lined up a bunch of stuff for us to go to the first one. And so Ann and I are going to fly we're going to fly to Chicago. We're going to spend the day, like the Saturday afternoon, and then we're flying back. It's like we literally have, you know, 
12 hours that Saturday to be there. And we're like, we've never been to Chicago. What do you do in Chicago? So I've learned from the first, pizza, hot dogs, and there's another place, Adam's Ribs. So I'm going to go and eat. You know, you travel places, you got to find the food so you can really take it in. And so I'm going to, we're going to hit all the food places. And we're like, well, the whole afternoon and evening, we've got to go to the, you know, the unshackled recording studio. But I'm like, hey, I spent a year at Moody Bible College correspondence, and I think Moody's close. And so it turns out that Moody's within four miles. Turns out there's a D.L. Dwight something L. Moody uh, museum there. And we're like, yeah, we got to hit up the museum. Learn all about it. And I'm like, man, something's changed because 15 years ago, I wouldn't care about this museum. But now it's like, ooh, I want to see the D.L. Moody Museum. And there was a little video. And on this video, it was beginning to explain some about D.L. Moody. And it said that, you know, D.L. Moody was uneducated, untrained, (laughs) poor, through the slums of inner city. Uh, He wasn't from Chicago, but he ended up in Chicago. And all of a sudden, with his zeal for the Lord, his ministry exploded. I mean, thousands of people. His church exploded so much so that the president of the United States, Abraham Lincoln, flew out to see what was going. And they said the thing that was transformational about this church is they showed the sign out front. And it said, every seat is free. Everybody's welcome. And they started to say during this time that the wealthy would buy up all of the seats and only the wealthy were allowed in the church. And I think that is such an abomination before the Lord. And we see that the Messiah entered this poor. You know, we do church events. Like we kind of said, hey, if money's stopping you, somebody kind of joked, hey, will you cover my cost for going to the thing? We don't do events here. Like, when it's a suggested donation, it literally means suggested donation. I won't do something that would restrict anybody from coming. Because as we fellowship, as we grow, we want all to be included. We don't want to exclude anybody. And I love this, that the Lord cared about their heart. So as they're going, he was satisfied with their offering of these pigeons. They were expecting God to speak to them, to move. And we're going to see a bunch of characters in the story. So, I mean, it was like 15 years ago, early in my Christian life, the pastor said, don't just show up at church and be where, but you should be praying as you're going into church. Lord, speak to me. I want to learn from your word. And so we want to be expecting, Lord, are you moving? I want to see what you're doing in my life. I'm, I'm ready to be used by you. And so here they go. Verse 25, my notes say, i got to find it in the Bible, I think. Uh, I'm in the wrong chapter. I get all excited, I lose my place. Where am I? Luke 2, 25, I can't even find, oh, see, i got to turn one more page, that's what's off. Yes, I'm the pastor of the church, and (laughs) I, I do know this. So they make their, they're about to make their offering. And so verse 25 A new character is introduced to us. We read, and there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, looking for the consolation of Israel. We learn that he's holy. He's righteous before the Lord. He loves the Lord. He's longing for the Lord to send the Messiah. He wants to see Israel redeemed. We're told that and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it happened to be revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord Christ. This is amazing. This this guy loved the Lord, just wanted to see the Messiah. Lord, just don't take me home till after I see the Messiah. Once I see the Messiah, that's totally good with me for, for me to die. This week I'm reminded of a man... Simeon reminds me of Pastor George Farrington. Some of you might not have a clue who George is. Other of us, you might know him. Most people who know him love him dearly because <laughs> that's the kind of impact he has. George was a pastor of this church in the 60s, and then he retired here from 90 until last year. To it, He was retired, but he was, essentially, he was basically pastor of the church. And uh, last year he moved to the, North Carolina to be with his daughters as their health was declining. And his daughter, Jan, emailed me this last night, actually. And 
it was funny in a way of like, I just love George and Evie. And they remind me of the Simeon. See, Evie, or Jan writes me last night. She said, are you still on the board of directors for the cemetery? And, and she said, well, because dad doesn't live in Valley Center, but I'm hoping that we can get them some plots. But this is a real battle at home. She's like, because mom and dad, they're convinced the Lord's coming back before they pass away. And she's like, and she's like well, I, and I don't want to have to go through this after they die just in case the Lord decides to tarry a little bit longer. And so, you know, I'm working through it. But it's like, when I see Simeon, I think of George. And I just love it. That he's been walking with the Lord. I don't even know how old they are. But he's like, no, I'm not dying. The Lord's going to come back. Don't waste your money on that cemetery. Give it to missionaries. Donate it somewhere else. And, you know, (laughs) but this is him. And we read in verse 27, and he came in the spirit to the temple. See, the temple, this is important. The Luke's gospel opens up with the angel Gabriel coming into the holiest of holies or appearing just outside of the holiest of holies to Zacharias. God hasn't spoken to Israel for over 400 years. But when the angel speaks, he quotes from the last word that God had given to Israel. And I want us to go over there to Malachi. It's the very last book of the Old Testament. So if we go back to Matthew, Mark, Luke, the book right before Matthew is Malachi. And the angel Gabriel concerning John the Baptist, he quotes Malachi chapter 4, verse 6 to Zacharias. But in Malachi chapter 3, we read a very important prophecy given by the Lord. And it says, behold, I'm going to send my messenger and he will clear the way before me. So he's speaking of John the Baptist, that he was the forerunner of Christ. His job was to go before Christ, prepare the hearts of men that they would repent, men and women of Israel and the world, that they would see Jesus and accept him as Savior. This whole preparing, I don't know how many of you water ski here, but one, like I love, like I used to love water skiing. I haven't done it in years. But the first rule they teach you in water skiing is when you get up, once you get up, the easiest part, I think getting up is the hardest part, but once you're up, the safest place to stay is right behind the boat because it's perfect. No matter how choppy it is out there, it's smooth sailing in here. And so that's kind of the idea of John the Baptist. He's preparing the way that there's this easy path that that Israel would see Jesus for who he is. But in water skiing, you've got to go to the outside if you want to catch jumps on the wake. So it gets a little bit more dangerous out there. But he says, John the Baptist, he will clear the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his where? Temple. They knew the Messiah would show up at the temple. And all through Luke, we're going to see Jesus going to the temple, showing up at the temple. And here he is at the temple. Here, the Lord, the Spirit leads Simeon to the temple to meet Christ. And the messenger of the covenant who you die at, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. And so as we go back to Luke chapter 2, and we see that Simeon is led into the temple in verse 27. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to carry out for him the custom of the law. Now notice this. This is the part I referenced earlier. Parents, take very good note of this. Me as a child, I hated that. I, well, I, I did not know this verse. But check out what it says. Jesus lived, died under the law. He knew no sin. He fulfilled the law perfectly. Look what it says. They brought the child Jesus to carry out for him the custom of the law. He's 40 days old. His parents could have easily not taken him to the... He could have not lived perfectly under the law. But his parents took him that he would fulfill the law. And we as parents, as a kid, I say, ah, I'm my own person. Don't take me to church. I don't give a, well, never mind what I, I don't care about that. You can't make me go. But as a dad, I see from scripture, no. God has entrusted my children to me and I have every obligation to teach them the truth. And we see this. They didn't just say, my son's God. We're good. We can miss church this week. 
No, they said, no, God has commanded us to do these certain things. And even though we know this is the Messiah, we're going to fulfill the law. And so they go there to carry out the custom of the law. Then he, that Simeon, took him, that's Jesus, into his arms and blessed God. I love this about other cultures. You go outside of the United States, everybody loves babies. You have a baby, like when Richard and I were in Mongolia, I was holding little baby Naomi. Patience was on my tongue, but it was Naomi. They took us out to Chinese food in Mongolia. And I'm carrying the baby. I'm the first one in, and I walk into the door, and a bunch of people in Mongolia start saying all kinds of stuff. All I knew was I walked in, and the baby was gone. And there was like a hundred ladies passing this baby around. They took off behind the back, and I was like, oh, no. And then Josh and Heidi walk in, and I'm like, Richard, I think I just got the baby stolen. They're like, no, 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 no. They love her. They, like, totally, you know, take her like that all the time. And so they walk in with Jesus, and Simeon just grabs the baby Lord Jesus and begins to praise God. He's holding Jesus, blessing God. He said, now, Lord, you are releasing your bondservant to depart in peace. What he's saying is, I've seen the Messiah. I'm okay to die. I have peace. God, you have fulfilled your promise to me. I'm good to go. Take me home. Is that old show? Elizabeth, I'm coming home. Lord, you can take me now. I've, I've seen Jesus, the Messiah. He goes on to say, for my eyes have seen your salvation. As he holds Jesus, he's, what he says, he describes Jesus as salvation. I've seen salvation. This is salvation. Baby Jesus is going. They're making an offering. Ultimately, this book, this gospel, the story of Christ. He goes to the cross. He dies at his death. Instantly, the veil is torn in two in the holiest of holies where God dwells. The veil is torn in two. God's spirit leaves that place. Paul in Corinthians tells us that y'all, and I use that word because proper English doesn't have Second person plural mastered yet. So y'all, that's what the South got it right. I think it's two estetis or something in Spanish. Two estetis, second person plural. Never mind. Yeah, okay, good. Say y'all. He says y'all together, the church collectively, the Holy Spirit dwells within you, that you're the temple of God, that we who are in Christ, the Spirit dwells. This is where the Spirit of God is today. And so here Jesus is fulfilling everything. He says, what you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light of revelation to the Gentiles. That's us. That's everybody who's not Jewish. Jew, Gentile, no more. In Christ, we're one. And the glory of your people, Israel. So at this point, I need to show the slideshow. If um, I could get somebody to kick off the lights. Isaac, can you kill the lights for me? Just all of them? He's got to, or not Isaac, Ben, thank you. Okay, this is, this is Israel in September. This picture was taken from the Mount of Olives looking across to Old Jerusalem. So this is the, the, the temple wall, the old wall that goes all the way around Jerusalem. This is um, the Dome of the Rock. This is a modern-day mosque. The mosque is built over the spot where Isaac was almost sacrificed by Abraham. I was thinking they say that it was Ishmael. But next slide. So this is a this is a slide. So this is the Mount of Olives, this area over here, looking across. That's that wall I pointed out. This little finger down here actually has a wall. But this is the city of David. That's the Dome of the Rock, not the temple illustration. This is the wall that goes all around old Jerusalem. Then you have the temple. This is huge. This is like about 20 football fields big. The history of the temple. This is the city of David. We see David was told to build the temple. He began making, gathering all the supplies, all the resources, everything to build the temple. Down to the, the worship songs that would be sung. But David goes and sins. He wants to take a census to see how many men were in Israel so that as he continued to battle on... And his head commander says, David, don't do this. Don't do this. Trust in the Lord. And David says, I'm going to take the census. So the guy submits to David as king, takes the census. 
the Lord appears and he gives him three choices. I kind of forget all the all choices, like 40 days of famine to let other people seize Israel and destroy Israel or take three days of the Lord's hand upon you. David says, I'll take option number three. And so the Lord comes, devastates a bunch of people in Israel. God then has mercy, doesn't give the three days. David doesn't know this. All of a sudden, the, the angel of the Lord, the pre-incarnate Christ, we're told, was standing on the threshing floors of Ornan, I think. I can barely remember my name half the time, so don't hold me accountable. Um, we'll, it's in Chronicles, and in Chronicles, I think, is where the story is really told. We looked at this when we went over um, the Psalms. And so it says that between heaven and earth, the angel stood. Oh, and this is the hill of Ornan, right over this spot. Huge picture. And the sword was drawn and over the city of Jerusalem. Now, during that time, this was just a field. This was the city of Jerusalem. So huge angel standing there between heaven and earth, holding this sword out. God tells somebody, I forget who the somebody was, go tell David he needs to go up there. And make an offering. So David goes. I think David thinks God's just going to take him out. But he was being a man. So he's walking up to the hill at the foot of the huge angel of the Lord with the sword over him. <laughs> Got my off. Now the owner of the field, it's hilarious. He now sees the angel of the Lord. Now he sees the king of Israel walking towards him. He's like, it's all yours. I'm out of here. Don't worry about it. Have it. David says, no, I can't take something that I didn't pay for. I'll pay for the land a fair price. Pays an exorbitant amount of money. David then makes a sacrifice. He realizes then that the Lord says, you will not build the temple because there's blood on your hands. David relinquishes his control to his son early. He has a pep talk with Solomon and says, Solomon, you're just a whippersnapper wet behind the ears. But God's going to have you build the temple. I've taken care of everything. All you have to do is... Is do it. I believe it's in Second Chronicles chapter three that Solomon begins work of the temple. The temple was built here. Ultimately, when the Babylonians in 586 BC took Israel captive, took away the southern kingdom, that's the story of Daniel being taken by Nebuchadnezzar. The temple is destroyed. Later, during the rebuilding process, King Herod, very wealthy man, built huge things, built the second temple which was ginormous. I think I made that word up, but it's okay because it expresses the idea of how big this temple was. The massive amounts of money that, temp, that Herod put into building the new temple, which is the next slide. This is, this. okay, go back. I forgot about this slide just to kind of show you guys. So of the temple here, this little section right here, this is the Western wall or the Wailing wall where you see people going up to the wall, putting their hands on, putting prayers in there because it's supposedly the closest place that you can get to the holiest of holies to this day. And so it's still worship. Next slide. So this is at Sukkot. This is all of them coming to the, te- coming to the Western Wall because it's closest to the holiest of holies. They're making their prayers. They're worshiping almost idolatry, worshiping the temple because the Lord's presence isn't there anymore. Next slide. So here's the temple. Down here, you might not be able to see it. This is the temple grounds. This black little item there is a, U- is a U.S. football a field. So I'm guessing that at least 20 football fields can fit into this area. Massive, massive, massive area. Around the outside, there's all kind of porticos. Jesus, when he is teaching through Luke, we're going to see that he tells them, you built this and in three days, I'll destroy it. And they say, what are you talking about? Because you see up here, they started building it. They began renovations 20 years BC. They didn't complete it until A.D. 62-64. So 80 years they spent building this. Then, like Jesus said, he was talking about his body, but in A.D. 78 years after the completion of something that took 80 years to build, Nero destroyed it, turned stone over stone, totally decimated this temple. And so our story today, in this huge area, well, let's go to the next slide, and then we'll come back to this slide. So this is the center. This is the actual temple. You had only Jewish people were allowed on the inner courts. You have the women's section. The priests would be in here. This is where all the the slaughtering tables were, the altar. In here was a little room where Zacharias was. There's a cloth, number three right there. Behind that cloth is where the presence of the Lord was. He dwelt there. 
It was his presence. And they would come. This is his, all of this stuff was set up to show man that they're sinful, that they needed atonement for their sin and there was nothing that they could do. And here the Messiah would ultimately provide atonement for sin. That veil is torn. The temple's gone. The Jews today have an issue. They're expecting the Messiah to come to the temple. There is no temple. He came. And so our story takes place right here on these steps, most likely. So go back to the bigger picture. And so this is a huge, I mean, 20 football fields. Anna, we're going to see later in the story, she probably lived along in one of the porticos. Huge, huge area. I mean, it's massive. So they're probably sitting on these steps. They walk up to Simeon, comes out, takes Jesus. Jesus would often teach from this location. It's the area where you could get the most amount of people gathered. He's 12 years old, uneducated, and he's stumping the religious leaders of his time, teaching them. He's at his father's house. They called him rabbi, yet he was never formally trained. But he knew the law better than any man because he authored the law. And so here they sit on this gate in the area where Gentiles, all nations are allowed to go to this spot. And Simeon, when he, in verse 30, he says, for my eyes have seen your salvation. Standing on the steps, and I don't think he's quiet about this. He's been waiting his whole life to see the Messiah. Hundreds of people all around. The Messiah is here. Behold, my eyes see salvation. Obviously, a crowd's kind of gathering. And we're going to see from Anna that, that stuff, Anna in the text, not Anna over there, but text, that, that you could tell a scene was being made. A light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people. How appropriate is that? Jesus came for all people. All people. You can go back to the first slide and we can pop on the lights here. So he's praising the Lord, holding the baby. Then in verse 33, he says that his father and mother were amazed at the things which were being said about him. I have amazed circled because, quite frankly, it doesn't take a whole lot to convince a young parent of their first child that their child's spectacular. Seriously. When you have a little baby, like if you want to get in good with anybody and they have a little kid, you just walk up to them and say, oh. This is the most wonderful kid. I've never seen a kid like, wow. Mom and dad will look at you and say, I know. They are amazing. Smartest kid ever. And so for a parent to be amazed at like praise being given to their kid. Like this is a big, it, like they knew Jesus was God. Like if any two, they understood and now this is like the fifth or the sixth person in the story that we've seen testifying that the Messiah would come. Gabriel shows up. Then we have Zacharias and Elizabeth testifying. John the Baptist testifies from the womb that the Messiah is there. Then today's story, we see Simeon testifying, and we're going to see Anna testifying. And they, well, and we've already seen the shepherds. So there's like seven people in the story giving, bearing witness that the Messiah had come. And they are blown away. They're 18, 16, young kid, holding the Messiah. And then Simon blessed them. This is a pastor putting his hands over them. He, see, he's going to, he understands, and he's going to say some very hard things to them. But I imagine here he prayed over them, Lord, help these young parents to fulfill what you want them to fill. Help them through what they're going to go through. And he said to Mary, his mother, I think we Protestants miss this next sentence. And I was raised Catholic, and I think that there's some extremes on the other side, but Protestants miss some of the, that Mary was the Lord's mother. This was her baby boy. He said, behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rise of many in Israel and for a sign to be opposed, and a sword will pierce even your own soul. He doesn't say a sword will pierce his eye. He said, a sword will pierce your soul. Mary, the pain that this child will bring you will be more than you know. Mary was there for everything as they were whipping him. 
and having shards that were tearing out chunks of flesh. So the scriptures tell us that by the time he even went to the cross, he was unrecognizable. And that was her baby. Last service, I got a bunch of people laughing. Seriously. I don't know if it was a true story or I made it up or like I think it's true. But I've seen similarities. We'll just assume it's a true story. <laughs> I'm leaving out all the names, but you guys will understand. Moms always think their boys are like little boys. Always. And I said that I, I kind of remember, but I don't know if I really remember if I just made it up because it's a good story. But I've, I've come close to seeing this. But doing ministry in retirement homes, every now and again, you'll get somebody that's very old, like in their late 90s. And they'll actually be like a child in the home with them, like that's in their 80s. Like you get a 97-year-old and an 82-year-old. And I see, I kind of remember, but see, Anna's here. She might shake her head and say it's not true, but it's still a great story. But there'll be like an old man in a retirement home with his mom who's 97. But she still treats me like a little kid. You, you can be 50 and your mom can be 70 and she'll see you like a little baby boy. I have older sisters that are 17 years older than me. I deployed twice in the Middle East. I was a Navy SEAL. I had a career. I was doing well. I had driven all the way up to see them in Northern California. And I'm trying to pump my own gas. Like, are you sure you know how to do that? Are you kidding, are you kidding me? I'm a man. I have a vocation. I know how to pump my own gas. Like, I'm not a little kid. And we're all laughing because moms, they still see their little baby boys as this. And every man in here is saying, my mom treats me like a kid. And Mary, Jesus, like one of the most powerful points in that whole passion of the Christ is when Jesus is carrying the cross and he stumbles. And Mary has this flashback of like a three-year-old baby Jesus falling and scraping his knee and like running towards her. It's powerful because she was his mom. And Simeon knew. And he said, listen, a sword will pierce your soul. It's going to be so brutal for you. The pain that Mary knew is a pain that we can't even comprehend. And when I look at this, there are times... When there are churches, when I see stuff on, you know, televangelists on TV, when I start seeing the prosperity gospel, people start saying, just trust in Jesus. You're going to get rich. All your problems are going to go away. Life will be good. This is not what Simeon told Mary. He said the Messiah's come. They're going to call you a loose woman. They're going to refer to the Messiah as an illegitimate child. You're going to watch him get executed brutally, being innocent. You know, what do you tell the person that's in the Middle East, that's from a Muslim family? Oh, just trust in Jesus and everything's going to get good for you. Or you come from a real good religious family that's just not Christian? Oh, just trust in Jesus. Your life will get great. Then you come to find out, well, your family disowned you. Everybody hates you. They want to execute you. How many people, I don't even know how many people, the fact that we hold Bibles here, were burned at the stake so that we could have it. Go with me to Matthew chapter 10. See, one of the things I appreciate about the Gospel of Luke, see, if we're reading the Gospel of John, we know exactly why John is writing He's writing that those who don't believe in Jesus would come to trust in Jesus as their Savior. Luke is writing the Gospel of Luke and Acts to somebody who believes, and he wants to affirm their faith, exhort them, strengthen their walk with the Lord, so that they may know the exact truth with preciseness of the things that happened. And all through Luke, we're going to be challenged. The scriptures are going to step on us on our toes and challenge us to really to surrender our lives and to live boldly for the Lord. And in Matthew chapter 10, verse 34, really, is where it's going. He'd, he'd kind of said in verse 28, as I ease into verse 34, he says, Do not fear those who kill the body but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. 
Are not two sparrows sold for a cent, and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father? The very heads on your hair are numbered, so do not fear. You are more valuable than many sparrows. He goes on to say, don't fear. Don't be afraid of man who can kill you. Be afraid of God who can take your life and damn you into hell. So walk with me. Verse 34, what he says is, do not think that I came to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I came to set man against his father and daughter against her mother and daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's enemies will be the members of his household. He who loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross. Now, cross, we think gold piece of jewelry that's nice, pretty, gives us good feelings, helps us feel safe. See, in California, they're executing people. The death penalty is by lethal injection. We don't, I don't think we do firing squads anymore. We don't do electrocution. So he'd say, pick up your lethal injection needles and follow me. Like the thing that would use, is used to execute you. Pick up your cross and follow after me. And he who does not take up his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who has found his life will lose it. And he who loses his life for my sake will find it. Jesus is saying, listen. Jesus is the line on the sand. The cross is the barrier which every person needs to cross. The Bible makes it very clear that you're either in Christ, you're saved by faith, for, by trusting in him, or you're his enemy, you're against him. Not that he's trying to save you, but that you're going against him. There is no, I'm kind of, I'm okay with Christians, but I'm not. The Bible says, no, you're, you're separated by God. There's sin there. And we know from scriptures that Jesus loves you. He's working on you. He's trying to, to lead you to him. The only reason that God's wrath hasn't come upon us is because he wants all to come to salvation in him. And Jesus tells us, as Simeon told Mary, listen, you accept Jesus. There are people that are not going to want to. Some of my best friends from the teams want nothing to do with me because I became a Christian. I have relationships that are down. Now, in large part, my life was a total mess before Christ. A total mess. So I don't really, like so far in my life, like Jesus has done nothing but restore my life. Like I'm very happily married. I have a few little kids. Like God has just blessed my socks off and I'm so happy. But I don't know that this will hold all the way through my life. I didn't come with him to, to get happiness. I came with him to be right with God because my sin has separated me. And through the cross, he saved me. And then he challenges us. Hey, it's not just about fire insurance so you don't go to hell. It's about, like that old hymn says, my favorite hymn, my favorite song in the whole world. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. We're in Valley Center. We like Westerns. In the Westerns, man's about to die. I intervene, save his life. That guy basically owes me a lot. He's indebted to me for the rest of his life. Jesus died on our behalf. He who knew no sin became sin, that we might have life. And it's not always going to be easy. If you trust in Jesus, the world is against him. They killed him. And we're not greater than our master. And so back to Luke here, Simeon prays over him. And, and as they were going to the temple, this is why it's so important for us to be connected to a body, to be in a church that's teaching the word of God, to have friends. Because you know what? It's only a matter of time before your world falls apart and you want people that can love on you, come around side you as Christians to pray for you, to say, I'm here for you, I'm helping you. We're a family. And I love that, like, for my daughter, when I first came to Valley Baptist Church, I remember it was like 14 people. I had a one-year-old that sat through the, the interview kind of making noise. And I looked at them and I said, listen, I want this little girl to fall in love with Jesus through her experience in a church. And if this church, like I would leave a church if it was, if I couldn't get it healthy and my daughter was to basically turn her heart against the Lord, I, my responsibility is to get her to a place. And I love it now that it's like, Grace, church is on Sunday. All right. How many, like she loves being around all of you. 
And we all should love being around each other. And he prays over her. You know, it's going to pierce her soul to the end that thoughts and hearts may be revealed. And I love, I mean, community. Jesus on the cross as he's dying, he looks at the apostle John and he says, behold your mother, mother, behold your son. Take care of my mom after I'm gone. Tradition holds that he lived to an old man and he took care of Mary to her death. And I think that Simeon was praying loudly. A crowd was starting to draw. And this prophetess, Anna, we learn about another person testifying. Verse 36, there was a prophetess named Anna, or prophetess Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, the tribe Asher. So we learn that she's from the northern tribes. Um, We also learn... um, She was advanced in years and had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage and then as a widow to the age of 84. So we learn that she was married for seven years. Then her husband died. From that point of her death till present day when she's 84 years old, she lived at the temple, probably in those outer condos. What we learn about her as she's in in the temple, um, she never left the temple, serving night and day, with fasting and prayers. All through the scriptures, when we see prayer, often fasting is connected with prayer. She's a godly lady. She loves the Lord. She's serving night and day. She's just surrendered her life to do the Lord's service. She's expecting God to move. She's fasting, longing for the Lord. We don't have a whole lot of time, but I want to read this little paragraph from John Piper on fasting. Why do we fast? And this is what he says. He says, the birthplace of Christian fasting is homesickness for God. It is an intensifier of spiritual desire. It is a faithful enemy of fatal bondage to innocent things. It is the physical exclamation point at the end of this sentence. This much, O God, I'd long for you for the manifestation of your glory in the world. It's powerful that when we fast food, not eating fast food, but when we don't eat food, what it does is, man, I go like, I miss lunch, and it's like, man, my stomach is like, oh, I can't wait to die. I must get at least goldfish or something in there, or I'm going to, but what it does is like, no, I'm not going to fast. I need to pray. I need to seek the Lord. Like, I can, I can barely miss a meal without knowing about it, but man, I can miss, I can go a while without praying and not even realizing and so we fast, it reminds us, it's a, it's a reminder, no, I need prayer, I need to pray. And we can fast other things. Like he says here, he says, it, an intensifier of spiritual desire is a faithful enemy of fatal bondage. See, there are things that are not necessarily bad, but we're like addictive people. Like it could be TV, it could be music, it could be golf, it could be video games, it could be Facebook, it could be reading the newspaper. I'm often convicted because I can go without fail reading the newspaper every morning. And there's times like, man, I need to read the Bible. So I need to like not read the newspaper. I need to wake up and just read the Bible. Because I know I can make time for a cup of coffee and reading the paper. But I always have an excuse of why I can't read the Bible in the morning. Like this is like present day. And so we see fasting, this longing for God. And this, this is how this woman is described She's longing for the, the Lord. In verse 38, at the very moment she came up and began giving thanks to God and continued to speak of him, that's Jesus, to all those who were looking for the redemption of Jerusalem. She walks by, Simeon in that courtyard is announcing the Messiah. She believes that's the Messiah. So she immediately begins giving thanks to the Lord and telling other people that the Messiah has come. I think these are two things that when a person comes to Christ that we see, when you realize that you need a savior, that your sin has condemned you, and you realize that Jesus came and paid it all, he didn't pay 90% and it's up to you to make up the 10%, he paid it all, that's enough to give thanks to God for for the rest of your life. And then she begins telling about other people, sharing. And then we read in verse 39, when they had performed... When they performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee, to their own city of Nazareth. So we're told here that they go back. But if you go to Matthew, which we're not going to do for time's sake, in Matthew chapter 2, verses 19 through 23, or the latter, like basically all of chapter 2, 
we learn that when the Magi came, this whole story, the Magi happened after our story of the turtle doves. And the reason that's not in Matthew 2.11, I think I skipped in this service, is they gave gifts of gold and myrrh. They wouldn't have had enough money to buy a lamb, but they didn't have the money at the time. So we know that the Magi found them afterwards. And when the Magi came to them, they said, hey, listen, King Herod found out about this. He's going to kill him. you got to get out of here. So the Spirit of God comes to Joseph in the middle of the night or whatever, and they take off to Egypt. They go down there, and Matthew tells us that they stayed down there till they heard that King Herod had passed away. But in the meantime, King Herod had killed every child, that male child that was two years and under, that was in Bethlehem and the surrounding area at the time of the Magi's coming. So I don't know if they found out about this months later, but every kid that was two and under when the Magi were supposed to go see Jesus, they were all executed. And they flee. But Luke doesn't include this. He kind of fast forwards till after this time when they make their way back to Nazareth. And all we know about Jesus in verse 40 is that the child continued to grow and become strong, increasing in wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. Jesus is 40 days old in our story. Next week, we get to verse 41. He, all we know about Jesus lived in Nazareth. He went to the temple for Passover every single year. And then when he's 12 years old, he enters into the temple. His parents lose him, and he's dumbfounding the religious leaders, sharing the things of the Lord to him. Then we, at the end of chapter 2, we read that very similar phrase that said, And Jesus kept increasing in wisdom and stature and favor with God and men. So Jesus, during his, earthly year, his younger years that we don't know anything about, he didn't take off. There's a bunch of false teachings that will tell you he took off to different places. He grew up in Nazareth. He was a Nazarene. He studied the word of God. He was growing as a man. He was growing spiritually. And then he enters scene as chapter 30. So we're getting very close to Jesus' earthly ministry, and Luke's going to take off. And so as we study this text, as I've been praying about this, like the bottom line, I see that all different generations are together. You see young Mary, young Joseph. You see... um, Simeon, you see Anna, you you see them worshiping together. Everything is about Jesus. In the middle of this temple, which they worshipped as idolatry, which they still worship today, they realize that this poor little child, this humble Messiah, was Lord. And he was worthy of worship. We're going to see the temple come and play. Jesus is going to teach there. He's going to kick over tables there. Ultimately, after his resurrection, the apostles, Luke ends with the very last verse of Luke, ends with after the ascension, they were praising Jesus, worshiping him in the temple, and he ends in the temple. So it's all about Jesus. It's not, it's not about religion. It's not about anything. It's Jesus paid it all. All to him we owe. He deserves all of our worship. I see community that these Jewish people during this time, that it was so important for them to go to the temple, to worship, to be in relationship with other people. And I see people that were like, Lord, here I am, use me. We sang a song about, put the cold to my lip, kind of quoting from Isaiah chapter 6. Lord, I'm a man of unclean lips. Well, I'll take care of you. Serve me. And it's, it's amazing. Fifteen years ago, when I heard, when I was becoming a Christian, And some pastor said, you know, you just step out and you live for the Lord. And you say, Lord, here I am, use me. He'll use everything in your life and he'll start putting you to work for things. And like, I'm just so overwhelmed. Like, if you guys knew me, you guys are probably going to get a new slice of my life when we have the listening party to Unshackled. But if you knew me then, the fact that I stand here and that I'm a pastor, that, that like in a happy church where we all love each other, it dumbfounds me. And then to think, like, I shared with you guys a couple months ago that I finally whittled my way as a chaplain into the SWAT team. And it kind of dawned on me, like, wow, Lord, did I just serve as a Navy SEAL for 12 years solely for the purpose of being able to minister to SWAT teams? Like, that that's the only reason I was a SEAL, was so that I could now do this. I don't know. But as you step out, I have no idea what God's worked in your life. I don't know the whole story. I don't know where your story's going to end, but I guarantee you, as you step out for him, he'll use things that he's put in your life, that each one of us are unique and uniquely wired for a certain ministry. And as we step out, God's going to blow you away. He's going to stretch you, and he's going to challenge you, 
And he's going to reward you with spiritual blessing that will knock your socks off. And Father, we do thank you for this day, Lord. We thank you for Jesus. Father, we'll never know what it costs for Jesus to go to that cross to die for our sins. That he would willingly be our substitute. That he humbled himself, became a man, lived perfectly under the law for us, for me. That every one of my sins was placed upon him. That in trusting in him, I would be made righteous, white as snow. Father, I pray that you would help me, that you would help each of us, Lord, to live out Ephesians 2.10, that you created us, Lord, for good works, Lord. Father, I pray that you would help us, Lord, as Jesus is, we even read about the Messiah, Lord, that he was growing, that he was uh, maturing. Father, that you would help us to mature in our walk with you. Father, that we would become all that you want us to be. Father, we pray for our friends, our family. Lord, we know the spiritual tension that when we get around believers, there's a special sort of kinship, a family feel, a, a love that we don't find in other places. Lord, we pray that you would help us, Lord, as we are out, Lord, amongst our family, our friends, our coworkers, schoolmates. Lord, that you would help us to be ready to be used by you, Lord, that we would be a light for you. We thank you, Lord, so much for this day. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.